I think if, uh, if we took a poll of the greatest causes of fear and anxiety and stress in people's lives today, I bet somewhere near the top of that list would be the word uncertainty. Because in so many situations when people find themselves anxious or fearful or stressed out, it's because actually they're uncertain about the outcome of those situations, right? In fact, uncertainty is probably a greater source of fear, anxiety, and stress in many cases than the thing we're actually facing. In other words, not knowing what's going to happen next can often be worse than dealing with whatever actually does happen, right? It's the not knowing part, I think, that drives us so crazy. When I was a kid, we grew up on a farm and we had lots of animals, but we had one dog. <clears throat> we had lots of dogs, but there was one dog who was the family favorite. He was a purebred German shepherd, and he was an amazing pet. He was like a member of the family. And uh, we would actually, my brothers and I, would jump on his back and grab his ears and ride him like a motorcycle. And, and he was such a gracious animal, you know. He was a big dog and uh, just a great pet, and he eventually died of old age. And so my father went out and, per because we were heartbroken, he went out and purchased a purebred German Shepherd puppy. And if you've ever bought a purebred dog, you know how much that can cost. They're very expensive, and animals are expensive to maintain. And so we got a lot of investment in this new puppy. And I wanted to walk my new dog. And so I went out one day with my friend and had the dog on a leash and went walking out along the road where we walked. And a car came by, and my dog jerked out of my hands and went up and got hit by the car in the road and was killed. And I was completely beside myself, and uh, the person stopped, and they were very kind, and she scooped me up and the dog up and drove us back home. And as I sat there thinking about it, it began to sink in what had happened, not only that I lost our new dog, but that soon my father would be coming home. <laughs> who had invested all of this money into this animal. And I became incredibly fearful because I was uncertain about what was going to happen. As far as I, I was concerned, my dog was in heaven. My real concern was that I was going to be meeting him there very soon when my dad got home. And so I remember just like falling apart at the seams and everybody in the family thought, you know, that I needed counseling. And I was thinking when my dad gets home, I'm probably going to need more than counseling. I'm going to need protection. Of course, dad came home and he was very gracious and loved me through it. But it was the time of waiting and not knowing that was so hard on me. The hardest part, I think, so often uh, of difficult circumstances is just the not knowing, isn't it? Not, not knowing what the doctor uh, is going to say when we're waiting on test results. Not knowing what our boss wants to talk about when maybe layoffs are imminent at work and we get called in for a special meeting. Not knowing how people are going to react when we mess something up, right? And we know a confrontation is coming. I think that uncertainty of not knowing can often be harder on us than facing the difficult circumstances themselves. And yet, uncertainty is a part of life. It is a reality for every human being, from political elections to personal crises to the weather. Our lives are continually surrounded by uncertainty to one degree or another, and so being able to effectively cope with uncertainty is often the difference between people who are able to function at a high level, even through very difficult circumstances, and those who simply shut down and maybe wait it out to see what's going to happen next. We 
Uh, we talked about heroes a little bit last week. And again, if you look at what makes heroes throughout history truly heroic, more often than not, it's what they do during times of great uncertainty, right? Inaction would rarely be described as heroic. It's generally people who act in the face of great uncertainty who achieve renown because for most of us, our nature is to want to insulate ourselves from uncertainty, which is one of the reasons why insurance is one of the largest industries in the world and retirement plans are so popular because we don't know what tomorrow holds, right? And so we try to mitigate the potential negative aspects of everything that could ever possibly happen before anything actually ever does happen, right? We're trying to insulate ourselves from uncertainty. And by the way, I'm not saying we shouldn't have insurance or retirement plans. Those are great. I'm simply stating the fact that the reason those industries, certainly one of the reasons they're so massive is because people don't like uncertainty. But I think it's, it's worth noting here that God never promised us that he would insulate us from uh, times of trouble. Quite the opposite. He promised us that he would be with us in our times of trouble. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, God promises to be with his people no matter what we go through in this life. Jesus said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, that hasn't come yet. Matthew 28, 20. The truly wonderful reality of that statement is the fact that even though there may be great uncertainty at times in our lives as far as we're concerned, the one who is always with us knows everything. In him there is no uncertainty. God is not wondering what's going to happen next from moment to moment. He isn't waiting to see how things will turn out for us. In fact, in Psalm 139, 15 and 16, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, David says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, listen to this, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Did you catch that? Think about that. He has recorded every single one of our days before we even existed. This is the confidence that we have as followers of Jesus Christ that no matter how much we do not know, no matter how uncertain our future might seem to us, God knows because he's the author of every single one of our days. He wrote the book that is each one of our lives before we were ever born. And so not trusting in him not resting in him every time we're uncertain about something is kind of like thinking we can surprise the author of a book by reading his own book back to him. God already knows what's going to happen to us tomorrow because he wrote tomorrow long before today. When you finally accept that, you really get it ingrained in your heart and in your mind. I'm telling you, it'll change the way you live your life because once you've truly accepted the fact that God knows what tomorrow holds and that he's in control of what tomorrow holds and that he's with you every step of the way right through what tomorrow holds, fear, anxiety, and stress are then replaced with faith and trust and peace. 
Uncertainty simply becomes an opportunity at that point. An opportunity to allow God to lead you into places and circumstances where you can fulfill all that he has created you to be. Okay? Once we stop trying to mitigate or insulate ourselves from every possible uncertainty, once we stop hiding and waiting it out when there's uncertainty in our lives, waiting to see what unfolds, and instead when we embrace the fact that God has placed you right where you are for a reason, when you begin to view uncertainty as an opportunity to trust God and faithfully follow his leading in a deeper way than you ever have before in those times of uncertainty, I'm just telling you a whole new world of opportunities will open up before you and you'll begin to express the gifts and calling that he's given you in ways you've only dreamed of. But that's gonna mean trusting that he knows what's next and trusting him to lead you through what's next. And all of that starts by believing that even though we don't know, God knows. And what a stunning example we have of this in our story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph as we work through the first 36 verses of chapter 41 today in the book of Genesis. It's where Joseph is learning through much uncertainty what it means truly to trust in a God who is always certain, a God who knows even when we don't. So let's turn there together to the book of Genesis, chapter 41, and we'll begin by reading the first eight verses. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And thin ears, they swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. Behold, it was a dream. And so in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So it's been two years uh, since Joseph correctly interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker as given to him by God, as we saw last week. And at the close of chapter 40, even though... Joseph had asked the cupbearer to remember him once he's restored back to Pharaoh's court. The final verse in chapter 40 says, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so two whole years have now passed without anything notable happening to Joseph, at least as far as our text is concerned. Keep in mind as we go, keep that in mind as we go, because there are often long periods of time in the lives of great Bible characters that I think we tend to overlook because nothing outstanding is recorded during those times. And so often when we're reading the Bible, we're actually reading about these people's lives from highlight to highlight. But it's important to remember that just like us, they too had long periods of time in their lives where they were simply getting up every day, doing their job, going back home, and in Joseph's case, back to his prison cell without anything exceptionally noteworthy to report, which is actually a very important detail here 
uh, for us to take note of, which we'll come back to because it's relevant to this message. And so after two unremarkable years of Joseph serving in prison for a crime he did not commit, Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. The first is about two groups of seven cows, each coming up out of the Nile. And in ancient Egypt, the Nile River was both the basis for and the symbol of Egypt's power and wealth. In fact, the river was deified in Egyptian religion. And cows were very important. Most of the uh, Egyptian gods were considered to be in the form of cows. And then throughout the ancient world, the number seven was considered a sacred number, often symbolizing one's fate. And so it's no wonder that this dream made such a powerful impression on Pharaoh and had him greatly troubled along with the, the second dream that was like it because God was communicating something to Pharaoh through cultural symbolism that was very powerful at that time in Egyptian society. In other words, God wasn't using Hebraic cultural symbols to speak to an Egyptian king because that wouldn't have meant anything significant to Pharaoh. So God used Egyptian symbols to speak to an Egyptian king in order to get his attention, and obviously it worked quite well because he's greatly disturbed by the images in the dreams, and yet he doesn't have the interpretation. So he calls all of the magicians and all of the wise men in the land to try and give him some answers. Uh, there was a class of priests or magicians in ancient Egypt that specialized in the arcane arts, in the, uh, the secret arts. In fact, there was a training center for their craft, which was called the House of Life, where they would go and live and not only be trained as magicians or diviners, but from that House of Life, they also produced guidebooks for dream interpretation that these people could use in their craft. And so these weren't your average ordinary uh, street magicians, right, or party entertainment. These were people who had devoted their lives to the dark arts with decades of training and manuals and experience in interpreting dreams, and yet not one of them could produce an explanation for Pharaoh's dreams. They couldn't conjure up their evil spirits. They couldn't conjure up other gods. They couldn't find the right information in their books. And because of it, Joseph's life was about to radically and rapidly change. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 16. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So after all of Pharaoh's experts failed to deliver an interpretation for his dreams, Joseph's old prison mate, the cupbearer, speaks up. And he says, I remember my offenses today. 
And if you read that sentence in the ancient Hebrew, the way the sentence is constructed, it literally says, my oversights I am remembering today. In other words, the cupbearer is not referring to his offense against Pharaoh that landed him in prison. Rather, he's referring to his failure to honor Joseph's request to remember him two years earlier. And so, better late than never, right? As the cupbearer does right by Joseph by telling Pharaoh all about this young Hebrew that he met in prison who has the gift of dream interpretation. And so, Pharaoh sends for Joseph who's quickly brought out of prison, his head and beard are shaved, his clothes are, are changed, that's all according to um, cultic Egyptian law, as preparation for entrance into the presence of the great Pharaoh, who along with all of the Pharaohs, by the way, were considered in Egypt to be descended from the gods. And so Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph's response not only comes with a great deal of humility, but a tremendous amount of courage, not only because of what he says, but because of who he's saying it to. Joseph answers, Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And he's not talking about Pharaoh's gods, right? In other words, Joseph, a foreign prisoner unknown to Pharaoh who could be put to death at the snap of Pharaoh's fingers for simply saying or doing the wrong thing actually corrects the king of Egypt about what his dreams mean. He says, well, actually, Pharaoh, no, you're wrong, you see. Just like your magicians don't know what your dreams mean. Just like your wise men don't know what your dreams mean. Just like your books of wisdom don't know what your dreams mean. Just like your pagan gods don't know what your dreams mean. Pharaoh, I also don't know what your dreams mean. You see, you're actually wrong about me. However, there is one. There is one who knows. My God knows. And because I know the one who knows, I might be able to help you out. And yet what I find even more striking than Joseph's bold response to Pharaoh at that moment is his righteous character at that moment, considering everything that he has been through, right? Joseph is given a word from God for the king's cupbearer and baker two full years earlier in the form of an interpretation of their dreams. And obviously, Joseph recognized that as an opportunity, most assuredly from God, to have his abysmal circumstances changed. He's been wrongly accused and thrown into prison. Joseph is innocent, but instead of becoming bitter and angry at God, Joseph continues to serve him even to the best of his ability through all of the uncertainty while he is in prison. And along comes this cupbearer and baker. Golden opportunity. Joseph supernaturally, by the gift of God, interprets their dreams. He obviously knows that all of this is God's doing. He says as much. And so he asks the cupbearer a very logical and fair question. Be sure and mention what I've done to Pharaoh when you get out of here so that I can be freed from this pit. And then two full years goes by and nothing, nothing Keep in mind that we know from reading the story now that the cupbearer forgot about Joseph, but Joseph didn't know that. Can you imagine his anticipation every single hour from the moment the cupbearer was freed, waiting and wondering when someone was going to show up and get him out of there? But the hours turn into days. The days turn into weeks. 
the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years and nothing, not a single word as Joseph is left there unjustly stuck in prison in a foreign country for a crime he did not commit. And once is one chance to finally get out an opportunity given to him clearly by God himself and it produces zero results as far as Joseph can tell. I just wonder, how many times did Joseph ask the question, when will I ever get out of here? When will my circumstances ever change? When will this ever be over? God, when will I finally get past this point in my life? When? You ever asked that question? I sure have. When, God, when is this going to change? When will this be over? When, when will I ever get past this point in my life? You see, I think Joseph was learning something that day. And I think it's something that we need to understand. Even though we don't know when our circumstances will change, God knows when. And his timing is perfect. Joseph was kidnapped at 17 years old, sold to traitors, taken to Egypt and sold as a slave, wrongly accused and put into prison. And the one realistic chance to be set free comes and goes two years earlier without a single encouraging word since. And now Joseph is a 30-year-old man. And as far as he can tell, all, that of his, all of his faithfulness and commitment to God, all that that's gotten him so far has been one devastating blow after another. Heartache upon heartache, setback after setback. 13 years of struggle, and yet he never seemed to lose his faith or trust in God. Even though his hopes had surely been crushed over and over again, not knowing when his time would come or if it would come at all, he still clearly trusted God. And he stood there before a foreign king and he boldly proclaims his faith and confidence that only God knows what we need and when we need it. It's natural when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances to wonder when things will change, of course. In fact, there's nothing wrong with asking that question. God, when is this going to change? But sometimes we don't immediately get an answer, do we? Sometimes our question is met with silence. Joseph had two years of silence, two years in an Egyptian prison in silence to wait and wonder when he might ever be free again. And the moment he's thrust before the most powerful human being in Egypt, the one person who had the authority to set Joseph free, notice Joseph doesn't begin pleading his own case. He doesn't proclaim his innocence. He doesn't tell the story about how he was framed by Potiphar's wife. He doesn't begin spouting off about what he did for the cupbearer. He doesn't beg for his freedom. It's amazing to me. Why? Because Joseph's faith isn't in Pharaoh or in any other human being or institution. No. Joseph understands that his fate lies in the hands of God alone who knows the perfect moment to move Joseph from where he is to where he's going. Right? If, if the cupbearer had remembered Joseph two years earlier, what usefulness would that have had for Pharaoh? Pharaoh wasn't troubled by prophetic dreams two years earlier. He'd have no reason to do anything but forget this Hebrew prisoner just as the cupbearer had. But now, 
Now Pharaoh was in trouble. Now no one in all of Egypt could help him. Now he was desperate, so desperate that now he was willing to entertain the likes of Joseph, a lowly Hebrew slave put into prison for allegedly raping one of the Egyptian officials' wives two years earlier. And now he allows Joseph to correct him to his face, which under any other circumstances would probably mean sudden death for a foreign slave. But this wasn't any other moment. You see, this was God's moment for Joseph. This was the one moment, the only moment where Pharaoh was desperate enough to forego decorum and bring this Hebrew into his presence from whom he would plead for help. How could Joseph possibly in that moment question God's timing? And really, how can we question God's timing in our own lives? when we're struggling and even when we're hurting and full of uncertainty because the fact is if we don't know all that God has planned, how can we question the God who knows everything that he's planned? We don't know what the other factors are involved in his plan for our lives. We don't know the perfect timing for God's will to unfold, but God surely knows. God knows when and his timing is perfect. Perfect. He knows the precise moment when to move you from where you are to where you're going. And so just like Joseph, even when God seems to be silent in our difficult circumstances, we must continue to trust in him that he knows the exact moment when everything needs to change. And, and it will change, but not a moment before the time is right. When Jesus' disciples were questioning him about the timing of future events, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. God has a plan for this world, and he has a plan for your life. But we don't always get to know what each step in that plan will be and when it will reveal itself. But God knows when, even when we don't. So we have to learn to trust him in that. John Calvin once wrote, nothing is more improper than to prescribe the time in which God shall help us. Since he purposely for a long season keeps his own people in anxious suspense that by this very experiment they may truly know what it is to trust him. That's encouraging. <laughs> Sometimes all that we can do Sometimes all that we should do is trust God in our times of difficulty, even when it seems like he's silent because he knows when it's the right time for things to change, even when we don't. And in fact, that should be incredibly encouraging to us today. Let's keep reading verses 17 through 24. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning." Then I awoke, and I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. 
And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So Pharaoh, without hesitation, shares his dream with this Hebrew prisoner accused of a horrible crime in the hope that uh, Joseph could offer the king some kind of comfort, some kind of explanation. For again, the imagery in this dream is powerfully provocative and it has Pharaoh shaken to his core. Uh, When he describes the second set of cows as poor and very ugly and thin, uh, that's the, the Hebrew word there for ugly is the word raw. It actually means evil. These were far more than simply starving or diseased cows. These were images of pure evil overcoming good. And obviously it had a profound effect as it should have had on Pharaoh. And in the ancient Near East, it was believed that the Pharaohs stood very close to the divine realm. And so the idea of a king of Egypt having such a vivid dream that was somehow just a harmless nightmare would have been out of the question, unthinkable at the time. So Pharaoh knows this is serious business, which again explains why he is overlooking all protocol or royal decorum other than the fact that Joseph was shaven and given new clothing, and that was done by Pharaoh's attendants. I'm not so sure Pharaoh at this point would have even cared about that. He just wanted answers no matter what it took, and so far he hasn't gotten any. Let's see what happens next, verses 25 through 32. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about." Finally, some answers for Pharaoh, right? Joseph explains to him that the two dreams are actually two different versions of the same message, that there will be seven good years of abundance in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of dreadful famine, a famine so severe that the previous years of plenty will be forgotten. And then Joseph explains that the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that it's a, the thing is fixed by God, and he will shortly bring it about. The word fixed there in the Hebrew is the word kun. It, it means that these events are firmly established, not going to be changed. It is set in stone. The story has been written. Remember, God wrote the book of our lives and the plan for this world long before we were here. And then Joseph adds that God will shortly bring it about. In other words, not only, Pharaoh, is this going to happen with certainty, but it is going to happen with immediate effect. So what has caused Pharaoh and all of his wise men and all of his pagan priests and all of his magicians and all of their tricks of the trade, a lot of confusion and grief and frustration takes Joseph all of about a minute to resolve for Pharaoh. Because even when no one else knows, God knows. And Joseph was God's man, okay? So Pharaoh 
finally gets an interpretation, but he still doesn't know what's going to happen as a result of the coming famine, which is obviously going to be horrible. And Joseph doesn't know what's going to happen to him as a result of being taken to Pharaoh to interpret those dreams, right? I just did what you asked me to do. Back to prison, off with your head. How do we know, right? Neither of them knows. And so often in our lives, we don't know what is going to happen to us when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, just as Pharaoh and Joseph didn't know what was going to happen to either of them, but God knows what. And his plan is sure. Just as Joseph said, the thing is fixed by God. Listen, God is not playing games with us. He doesn't roll the dice to see how our lives are going to turn out. No, every breath that we take is ordained by God and every step in our journey has been authored by him. We may not know when things are going to change for us and we may not know what is going to happen next, but he does because God knows all and he's in control. His plan is sure. The thing has been fixed by God. He never falters. He never fails. He, he's never weak or uncertain. He never changes. God never stumbles and he never wonders what's going to happen next. So why do we doubt him? The great prophet Isaiah put it this way, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Who are we to be compared with God? He knows everything. Isaiah continues, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of this earth as emptiness. Isaiah 40. 21 through 23. This is exactly what Pharaoh and Joseph were experiencing in this very moment. An almighty, sovereign God who has the answers to every question concerning what will happen next, even when no one else has a clue. Right? There isn't one moment of your life that has escaped God. Every moment that has ever been and every moment that has yet to come, God knows. He knows what happens next, even when we don't. So why do we doubt him? We doubt because people tend to only trust in things when they can confidently predict, measure, or control the outcome. But we cannot predict, measure, or control God. And so we have trouble always trusting him. It's why following Jesus Christ requires faith. It's also, by the way, why some people will never follow Jesus Christ. Because there are people who will not put their trust in something that they cannot confidently predict or measure or control. Of course, 
we do know our ultimate outcome, don't we? At the end of this age, Jesus assures us of that throughout his word. But I'm talking about what happens in our daily lives when we don't know what's going to happen next and God seems to be silent on the matter. Joseph could have completely fallen apart in those two years of silence in prison. In fact, he may well have had his moments. We don't know. But when the time came, confronted by the most powerful human being in Joseph's world, Joseph put his trust completely in God alone because he knew that only God could see what was next. He said to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And that is exactly what God did. In fact, we not only see evidence of that in biblical scripture of the seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and then plenty after that again, but we actually have ancient texts from Sahel in southern Egypt dated from the second century BC that tell of a seven-year famine followed by years of plenty in the time of Zoser. He was the Egyptian pharaoh of the third dynasty around 2600 BC. The Gilgamesh epic Uh, The Ugaritic epic of Akkot, there are many uh, ancient Mediterranean texts that all record a seven-year famine in that time frame. Why? Because the thing was fixed by God. Even when he seems to be silent, his plans for us are sure. They are fixed. And even though we cannot predict or measure or control what happens next, we must learn to trust him even in the times of silence when we don't know what's coming next, when it feels like our situation will never change. We must learn to trust that God knows and he's working all aspects of our lives together for his purposes and for our good in his timing. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 33 through 36. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all of the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. So Pharaoh asked for an interpretation of his dreams and he gets it. But then unsolicited, Joseph continues far beyond just offering an interpretation. Now now he's offering a solution to the impending disaster. And whether he realizes it or not, Joseph is actually reading his own resume to Pharaoh as he describes the person that should be overseeing this massive project of preparing Egypt for seven years of famine. Remember, Joseph was put in charge over all of Potiphar's house. And he ran it successfully for 11 years before going to prison. And then in prison, he was set over that entire operation to supervise the administration of the prison and the other prisoners for over two years. So Joseph has now extensive experience managing and administrating large operations for many years now, which is exactly what Egypt needs to be able to weather the coming famine. But what's most impressive about this detailed plan for preserving the nation through a difficult time is the fact that Joseph has just heard these dreams from Pharaoh. In other words, this plan he came up with wasn't something that he'd been cooking up or working on the last two years in prison during his downtime. 
No, he's hearing these dreams for the first time and then immediately offers Pharaoh a detailed plan for imposing a a 20% tax on all of the produce of the land to be held in escrow in each city around Egypt and then sold back to the very people who contributed it in their own cities during the time of famine. So the plan not only provides food for the people in Egypt when nothing is growing, but it actually provides extra revenue extra income for Pharaoh's government during what would otherwise be a time of economic disaster. This was nothing short of brilliant for Pharaoh, and it was delivered by Joseph on the spot right after hearing of God's plan to bring a famine on the land. All the way through Joseph's story, we see that God is with him. Even In the times of silence, when it seems nothing is happening, God is actually preparing Joseph to be able to fulfill his calling, right? His time in Potiphar's house and his time in prison were training grounds for Joseph's ministry to come. Joseph didn't know when it would come, but God knew when. Joseph didn't know what would happen next, but God knew what. And right up to the moment that Pharaoh was relaying his dreams to Joseph, neither of them knew how they would be able to handle the situation before them. But God was revealing to them both, through Joseph, exactly how to handle this challenge ahead. And I'm telling you, when we're facing uncertainty before us, we don't always know how to handle it, do we? But God knows how. And he is with you all the way. Joseph was never, not for a moment, was he without God. When he was thrown into a pit by his brothers, I'm sure he didn't know how he would ever get out of that situation. When he was being carted off to Egypt by a group of Ishmaelites, I'm certain Joseph didn't know how he would ever gain his freedom. And then sold into slavery and wrongly accused of a crime and thrown into prison and taken before Pharaoh on a moment's notice, Joseph didn't always know how his life was going to play out. There was a tremendous amount of uncertainty at times in his life, but God knows how everything is going to work out in the end and he is with us all the way through it. He said to Joshua, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, Joshua 1.9. He said to Isaiah, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10, he said to Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6, and of course, Jesus said to all those who follow him, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28.20, you see, this is who our God is. He's always with you. Even when he seems silent, listen to me, even when you have no idea how you're going to deal with whatever it is you're facing today, I'm telling you, our God knows how. And he is with you. And he loves you. In fact, there is nothing in heaven or in hell that can separate you from his love. The Apostle Paul said, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things 
to come, the things of uncertainty ahead of you, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. You see, no matter what comes our way, Jesus Christ is with us. And he knows how to lead us through it. Not just so that we can survive, but that we would thrive as we become everything that he's created us to be. Right? When all hell breaks loose in your life and you don't know what to do, look to God because he knows. And he's right there all the time. He's actually right there with you and he loves you in every single moment, in every single breath, in every single second of uncertainty. God is there with you to love you and to guide you through to the next chapter of your life. In him there is no uncertainty. He's not wondering what's going to happen next. He isn't waiting to see how things might turn out for you. So listen, don't despair. Because God knows what you're up against. He knows what you're facing. He knows your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows all of your uncertainty. And yet he is not afraid. He doesn't have doubts. There is no uncertainty in him because the thing has been fixed by God. Your future in him has been fixed. It is secure. He has already written the next chapter of your life, which means uncertainty for us, honestly, is nothing more than an opportunity. It's an opportunity to trust God and faithfully follow his leading in a deeper way than you ever have before. And, and that'll open up a world of opportunities when you do that, as you express the gifts and calling in ways that you've only dreamed of. And so just like Joseph did, I'm telling you, you can trust him. Even in the silence, you can trust him because God is with you and he loves you. And his plan for you is sure. And his timing is perfect. So trust in him. Even though you don't know when or what or how it's all going to work out. Trust in him. Because God knows. Let's pray.